In education, quite often we talk about the power of differentiated learning, but what about differentiated grading? Many schools in America still provide a traditional grading system which requires educational leaders to ask the question, what should the role of grading be for our students? My guest today is one of the top experts in differentiated assessments and grading, and his philosophies have been inspirational in my own growth as a leader. I'm so excited to share his story and expand on how fair isn't always equal. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. My guest today is Rick Warmelli, and he's the author of best-selling books, Day One and Beyond, Fair Isn't Always Equal, Differentiation, and Metaphors and Analogies. Rick, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for what you're doing. I really enjoy every interaction with you online. And as you know, the podcast is on leadership development, and I would love to hear about your leadership journey. Well, to be really honest, I'm I'm pretty much looking around me going, what, who, me? Did you really (laughs) mean to ask me wisdom? Because there's this a little bit of sense of we're kind of told over and over again to be very humble, not assuming, and you know, for years when I had some opinion about something, I would have to beg and borrow time just to get 30 seconds of a state legislator's attention or a principal's attention or a superintendent. And I, I kind of was sitting there going, who am I to have a voice? And I'm I'm just a teacher. And then I really could start exploring the professionalism of teaching and realized, holy cow, I'm a teacher. <laughs> and, you know, and I could really stand up and I had actually something to say and it mattered and it made a difference and it was a positive difference. So to this day, I really just can't quite believe that I've moved into that mode from being in the classroom for, for so many years and, and now there. But I think a lot of it came for me through writing. When I wrote articles, my very first few articles in the first part of my career, people would say, oh, that helped us. And so I would give me encouragement to write the next article. And then people started saying, well, you're talking about kind of scary stuff to talk about because you know, it's not politically expedient to bring up some of those topics. But wow, you're encouraging us and inspiring us to try these things. And then, of course, I realized, wow, if I'm going to start moving into that position, I better have something substantive, but also get it right. And, and it just kind of fed things till eventually, you know, I was getting my master's and credentials as a principal and administrator, in addition to curriculum and instruction and everything else. And like so many things, it was synergistic in that one thing led to another, one thing imbued another. Mm-hmm. And eventually I just, I had this conversation with my principal one time and she said, you know, the stuff you're doing with professional organizations and writing and writing books and, and kind of being asked to appear on panels, you've kind of outgrown the classroom just a little bit. And if you wanted to take that step and kind of become an ambassador for our school district, but just really explore where that that path takes you. You know, I, I, I can support that. We'd love to keep you here. But it was becoming cumbersome with after some ASCD videos I did and some other stuff with people saying we want to come see Rick's school when the school belongs to the, the students that are there and it shouldn't be known for me. So it became a little bit easier to step away from that and kind of get into this more full time. So for this episode, I really want to start by discussing concepts from your book, Fair Isn't Always Equal, and I know a new edition had come out uh, last year, 
And you really talked at the beginning of the book about differentiation mindset. And in the book, you created this amazing baseline of thinking with differentiation, and you really dispel some misconceptions. For instance, a lot of teachers say they differentiate in the classroom, but I want to know how would you suggest differentiation be utilized with our students? Wow. I mean, that's like the $64,000 question, and others have <laughs> answered it far more eloquently than I have or will be able to do in this moment. But, you know, differentiation, a lot of people get real mixed up between what is fair and what is equal or what is equitable mm -hmm. and what is equal. Uh, they get real lost in fair means they do the same. Like if you spend 20 minutes on a computer, I have to let other children spend 20 minutes on the computer. And that's not fighting for fairness. That's fighting for equal and sameness. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you're developmentally responsive to the students you have in front of you. So the root of differentiation in my mind is responsive teaching. So if you know something about the child and you could improve the learning over that, which otherwise could have been achieved with a one size fits all approach, do you have the courage of conviction? And do you have the instructional versatility? You have a large repertoire to actually respond to that and do something with it. Or do you say, you know, one size fits all. I'm preparing you for the working world. Nobody's going to differentiate for you. And you don't have to learn all this stuff, which actually is a little bit of that soft bigotry of low expectation. So the idea that you would remain vigilant and attentive to actually know your students, and then you would have the wherewithal to actually know a variety of ways to teach the same thing and what might resonate best and most meaningfully and of course, that would ultimately lead to most powerfully with their learning. And then do you have the courage to act upon that, even when it's not politically expedient to do that? You know, it might be unpopular or something to do that. I, I, I'm a real advocate that we shouldn't hide behind the master schedule design that, you know, nobody knows how long it takes anyone to learn anything. But schools are based on that. And so now we're kind of stuck with, no, I have to keep going with this because we're on this, this conveyor belt and we have to constantly move forward. Or you already know it, but I don't have anything else to do with you, so I've got to admire you in mediocrity and what you already know. So it's a commitment to knowing the kid and then following assessment's golden rule of assessment informs instructional design. So a lot of people do like give choice on projects, divide kids up into groups, all kinds of things, but that's just being creative. It's only differentiation if it's based on what you knew about kids, and you can literally prove to me you're responsive to that unique knowledge of, of the kids. But a lot of teachers don't necessarily have a lot of different avenues for figuring out what they know about the kids. Because one, they're, they have really narrow time constraints. Mm -hmm. I just read an article that came out this year that we're doing this, this recording that is on how do you get to know your kids so you actually can respond to what's going on there. And then imagine me stopping you in the hallway and I say, Prove to me that you're a responsive educator, that you take what you know about kids and it informs your decisions regarding instructional design. And I would hope somebody would say, well, um, here's what I know about Lakeisha and Iqbal and Jamal and Catherine and Todd and Karen. And here's what I decided to do as a result that actually led to more learning than would have been done if I just did the one canned program or canned idea that I had in my lesson plan. And then do I have the dexterity to respond real time right there in the classroom. If I found, if I had new data, new observations, could I go different directions? To me, that's kind of getting to the crux of it. It's, it's way more demanding of children 
it's because I know what buttons to push on you, so to speak, and I push them and you have no choice but to follow along. What is escapist and going soft is never differentiating because the brain is simply a survival organ. It's out for self-preservation and it will escape, it will avoid if it can all help it because it's, it's just too much energy expended to try to follow along in this thing that's making me think and engage at a much deeper level. You talk about in the book in regards to differentiation mindset, but then you also talk about differentiation in assessment and grading. So what do you believe the role of grades should be? Well, grades, pretty much every book you ever read in the last 20 years, let alone the work that I have done, in chapter one or chapter two, they'll always talk about the fact that grades are supposed to be accurate, undiluted, undistorted, morally you know, supported, mm-hmm. uh, but very accurate communication. So they're not compensation, they're not reward, they're not validation. Those things will come with the new rights and privileges and freedoms granted of your new status of competency or whatever it is. But the grade itself is merely a report of evidence presented as of one temporary calendar date arbitrarily imposed upon a group of children. So that means that any particular grade is temporary at best, given new evidence of subsequent higher performance, higher proficiency, or less so, the grade could change, but it's merely a report of evidence. So grades themselves, I do not consider as assessment. They are reporting of the student learning as of one calendar date. Assessment is a very different character, and it's actually more valuable to the overall learning experience. So if grades are a form of communication in regards to mastery, what are the flaws of our traditional grading system, which is a system 0 through 100, A through F? You remember, grades and summative assessments are, say, for final evaluation, judgment. Formative assessment is far more for diagnostic, Mm -hmm. to inform the learning and decide where to go next, provide feedback, all that different dynamic that's so incredibly powerful in any one learning experience. I love what Tom Gusky often says that, you know, you can learn without grades, but you, 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 you can't learn without feedback and the assessment dynamo that happens in that. So some of the issues, for example, with the 100 point scale, the more levels you have, the more wildly varying the grades will be and, and much more subjective. And quite often, if you have a lot of levels, students are misclassified, according, again, to some research with Tom Gusky, and they don't get the kind of response from the teacher that's really needed in a differentiated class. So we want fewer levels where we can actually calibrate the evidence for each level with other teachers in the same subject area. So we sit down and decide, hey man, when it comes to this thing, what's excellent, what's almost excellent, what's developing, what's you know emergent, or whatever your proficiency levels are. And the problem is today, we have some students who would all learn across several classes to a particular degree of learning but one teacher would call that an A, another teacher would call that a B or C, mm-hmm. and then the teachers have the nerve to tell parents and students and college admissions officers and others, any other stakeholder, that the grades have integrity and they mean what they say. You can't do that. One of you or more of you is going to be wrong. And so I think the critical mass is rising that grades better mean what they say, or they're really going to be, we're going to have to toss them out the window as, as many teachers are beginning to think about doing right now. Mm-hmm. The 100-point scale also gives a false sense of precision. You know, ask any teacher what is literally the difference in mastery or proficiency or competency between an 86 and an 87. That's splitting hairs on this false sense that you can perceive mastery to that level of precision, 
But really, its larger focus when you do that is for sorting students. And we're there to build students, to, to create their learning journey, all those different things, not to sort them. So more and more schools are getting rid of valedictorian, for example. Yep. And they're saying, you know, all these kids that are very high caliber, you can't distinguish between them. So it doesn't warrant elevating one and summarily rejecting others. A better system is the Latin system, magna cum laude, summa cum laude, and so on. And you find another way to figure out who's going to address the graduating class and get the, the college scholarships. That percentage system allows teachers to overly rely on mathematics to find grading credibility. And really, it's supposed to be an analysis of evidence presented, and particularly over time. So if you're just hiding behind the numbers, it gets much easier not to spend a lot of time truly analyzing student work against the evaluative criteria and providing helpful feedback. It becomes a numbers game. In my own experience, and I think I've actually written about this in the book, you know, we had 94 as the lowest A mm -hmm. in our school district, and a child got 93.4. And he tried to come to me and say, can't you round that up? And I said, look, if I round, it's a 0.4. I'm going to round lower. But if it was a 93.5, I'd be justified mathematically rounding up. That's terrible. I, I'm embarrassed to share with you that I used to do that very early in my career. What I should have done is, all right, let's talk. And asked him pointed questions where he had to demonstrate evidence of all the major standards for that marking period. And then made an executive professional decision. And fortunately, in my particular school and district, they are very supportive of the grade is not mathematically calculated. It's a professional opinion, mm -hmm. but teachers are trained in how to analyze student products against evaluative criteria and are very comfortable explaining the rationale. You demonstrated this evidence, this proficiency, and that corresponds to this shorthand symbol called 3.5. Here's how you might move from a 3.5 to a 4.0. And the kids, are very good in those kinds of classes at self-monitoring. And that means they'll own their learning and they develop a lot more self-efficacy. And I think if you move away from the 100-point scale, which lends itself to all kinds of corrupt measures like averaging mm -hmm. and this sorting uh, mechanism, that you find, one, you enjoy teaching way more. There's more, many, there's more hopefulness in the classroom and meaning-making and aha moments where kids understand things. But you also find it decreases learned helplessness it decreases plagiarism and cheating, and it raises kids owning and becoming much more active, not passive, in their learning. And in regards to the 0 to 100 scale, I know that there's an imbalance as far as those who are failing and who are passing. So, for instance, in our yes. district, I work at a middle school, and 70 is passing. So 0 to 70 is essentially failing. So will you just talk about potentially the imbalance in regards to passing yeah. and failing? Well, when teachers or principals or any educator or parent struggles with that particular concern, do I have a minimum F? Do I make a zero into a 69, a 60, a 50, a 70, whatever it is? Yep. They're really stating a, a lack of awareness of interval science and also central tendency. So, for example, in most school districts, one zero averaged in uh, to everything else, it would take about six or seven perfect hundreds in a row just to average up to a D range. And the students realize there's no hope for me. Why should I bother? I can't recover from this one skewing outlier. And what I try to share with folks is if you are holding on to a compensation metaphor, you tend to push back and you say, 
I'm not going to pay someone 50 bucks or 60 or whatever your particular new minimum F is. I'm not going to pay someone $60 if they don't do their job. And I would agree with that. But that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. What we're trying to do is if you are stuck still using averaging, which I advocate we should drop, if you're still stuck doing that, then one zero is too overwhelming. So you need to have each interval of associated grade range be equal. So 90 to 100 is about 11 points. 80 to 89 is 10 points and so on. They're all 10 points. And then you need to not speak and promote the idea of, of you've got a 60, you've got a 67. What you say is the actual proficiency scale. Mm -hmm. So for example, students never ever say, hey, I did nothing at all for five weeks. You guys worked hard, but I did nothing and I still got a 60. Because what they're really saying is, hey, I did nothing at all. You guys worked hard, but I did nothing and I still failed. Oh, wait a minute. That doesn't sound so good. <laughs> so they realize that they're failing. And I, to be really honest, students get it faster than the adults in their lives understand this. They're not getting something for having done nothing. So I, again, this is borrowing from a, a friend, Doug Reeves. But when you give a zero on the 100 point scale, that's about six levels below failure. You know, be 60 or so being the failure line. Right. You're, in your case, of course, it was probably 69. So that's the same thing mathematically and ethically is saying on a 4.0 scale, I'm not just going to record a zero when you don't do something. I'm going to record a negative six. And you will have to climb six levels up just to get even with abject failure. This is insane. Mm -hmm. it, 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 there's no way to recover from that. And if you go back to grades as accurate report of learning, what you're doing is you're distorting the truth of what a child has actually learned in the course of that marking period. And the word we use in America for distorting the truth is lying. And no one, including me, has any moral authority to lie to parents, to students, to all the stakeholders involved. So for a lot of different reasons, the, the math doesn't add up, it, the science doesn't add up, the pedagogy doesn't add up, but really the ethics and morality are not there it makes no sense to use the 100 point scale to report human progress against standards. It makes every sense in the world to migrate towards smaller scales where we have much higher inter-rater reliability. Be in my class would be the same thing. You would give the same learning in your class. We, it really lines up and we're not distorting truth. Rick, I've been at four different campuses in two different districts, and we've had some very similar concepts uh, be discussed. And one of the most passionate conversations is in regards to retesting. A lot of teachers state that retesting doesn't prepare the children to be adults. So I'm just curious on what your philosophies are on retesting. Great. I think this particular recording session will last for the next three hours. <laughs> I have a lot Perfect. to say about this. One of the things I think people forget is that if you're in the working world, you know, for a long time before you, be, you become a teacher, I do second career training with a lot of people, all branches of military service, engineers, scientists, uh, mathematicians, and so on. And after 20, 30 years, they want to go in the classroom. They get redos. They're totally fine with it because they see how it's a part of the larger professional world. And other people who go to college and go right in the classroom who've not experienced the larger world, you know, working in a variety of careers, they're the ones that push back the most. So I need to get out there this idea, uh, several ideas. One, that 
reiteration where you try something out with a basic core knowledge and somebody critiques you and then you revise in light of that and you're a little bit better next time is the way every single profession creates competent membership. So EMTs, accountants, pharmacists, it does not matter. Engineers, mathematicians, military leaders, it, you do your thing a lot. You do it over and over and over. The exemplars we lift up to put in front of children, like dancers and writers and artists and thinkers and inventors and leaders and lawyers and so on, they did their thing a lot. It wasn't one and done and there's your quality, to excuse my little sound effect there. Uh, there's... That's, that's not how you get to be competent. Yet teachers claim to be wanting to create competence in the kids, make sure that they were competent in whatever they were teaching at the time. So that's, that's one kind of element. The second thing, that dynamic that's going into a lot of the pushback or resistance is that many teachers do not have any background in how do you cultivate self-efficacy, tenacity, perseverance, moral fiber, respect for deadlines, getting your act together, starting the project of the night or week it was assigned, not the night before it was due. They don't have a year-long course or more in their schools of teacher ed, and they've not studied it outside of that. So they're over-reliant on the grade book for a very simplistic and actually terribly exacerbating uh, approach to build those things in students. It's, it's uninformed, mm -hmm. and that's very fixable. We can change that. If we were to look and really sit down and vet all the literature, the research, everything we know about how you cultivate responsibility in a student, not one of them would say, yeah, knowingly distort the accuracy of the report of learning and deny them all subsequent attempts and iterative, iterative practices to actually learn the stuff. None of them would say deny redos. They'd all say, no, it's going to be through reiteration that you teach these things. So I would suggest and I have, you know, lots of recommended sources for this. I would be glad to offer anybody. I include it pretty much in every presentation I do on grading. Let's take a look at executive function and all the ideas about how to teach kids personal responsibility, uh, time management, distractibility, impulsivity control, you know, all those different the steps to task analysis, all these different things that some of us even struggle with it, you know, into our adult years. And let's do those things. That are so powerful but let's not rely on hey one and done and you have an f because you didn't use your time wisely another dynamic here is something that a lot of teachers forget is that when you go through formal schooling and you are certified in the field you have proclivities you have skill sets and you're not even interviewed for the job until that's demonstrated now you're in the job you were hired to do that one job and you have adult level maturity you have the skill sets you're certified, the affinity for all of it. But you're not asked to do everything else that everyone else in the company or organization is doing. So like in a school, you're not the one that teaches every single level of Spanish, French, Latin, Japanese, German, whatever, plus every level of science and math and English and everything else. And you're not also the one that has to fix the HVAC and boiler system. Mm -hmm. You're also not the one that hires and fires teachers, does all fine and performing arts, keeps up with educational technology innovation. Uh, hands out the, the meds or whatever you need to do as the, the clinic aid or the nurse. Mm -hmm. That's what that would be insane. That would be a ridiculous. But in kindergarten through 12th grade, you have to be good at everything. Everyone is on the exact same day to the exact same level of proficiency with the exact same format 
regardless of what's going on in your life or whether or not you have the proclivity, the certification level, uh, the maturity for doing this stuff. So I think it's abuse. It literally is abuse. It's just, it, at the very least, it's misguided to demand adult level maturity, post-certification performance when you are a morphing, insecure human that's not even going to go into that field. And to demand that it all be on the exact same uniform timeline, again, arbitrarily imposed on children, even though like popcorn, you know, they pop at different rates. Hmm. So if yep. somebody needs 17 times to learn something, another child only needs two, go for it. That's fine. It doesn't matter because we were hired to teach so the students learn, not to perpetuate a gotcha mindset. I want to touch base on several things that you've talked about because you've talked about behavior. You've also talked about effort. And I know many teachers use grades as a form of motivation. So for those who are using, for instance, a signed syllabus or incomplete homework, or it's not neat enough, what would you use in place of for those teachers? Well, the thing is, a, a lot of teachers, and myself earlier in my career too, so I have to admit in, in all honesty that I used to do this, but I don't do it anymore, and I, mm -hmm. I hope I can get convince others not to do it. There are a lot of times that we assume things in the standard that really is not in evidence. So, for example, the standard might be the student is able to analyze political rhetoric in po a political speech or analyze literary devices in a novel or something. But it does not say... When the student is reading on grade level, cold for the very first time text without any support, the student is able to, you know, in front of that. Yep. So what that means is there's a much higher level of reading comprehension when it's read aloud with proper vocal inflection by somebody who knows what they're talking about. So what if the, the text was much up, way above grade level or above the reading level of the student and they really were able to do those things? Well, then I can honestly say you have a 4.0 and analyzing rhetoric. You can totally do it. You employ all the techniques. You're spot on. You support it with evidence. We're great. A separate standard is can you read on grade level? So there are a lot of things that kind of get in the way of an accurate reporting. And this might be some of that stuff. Uh, when you do a, a word problem in mathematics, it's way more a test of reading comprehension than it is of mathematics. And I've had many kids who read below grade level or English language learners who actually understand the very complex and nuanced, versatile math that's required, the dexterity, they can demonstrate it, the agility to solve the particular problem, but they don't really understand what the problem is because they can't read it correctly. And so we, we've got to be mindful of that weaving in. So when you get to things like neatness, uh, any kind of thing that's just aesthetically improving it, you really have to go to the standard and say, is that in the course description and the standard itself? So for example, a band director or a choir director or whatever it is might say, you will get an A if you show up to play in the concert tonight. You'll get an F if you don't show up, yep. which is a form of you know bribery and coercion. And I got to say, hey, music directors, look at your program of studies. Does it literally say shows up to play in concerts as a sign? No, it does not. What it says instead is demonstrates the capacity to perform an ensemble in a public musical performance, follow the direction of a conductor, demonstrate proper musical dynamics, strong and fortissimo, soft pianissimo, acts accordingly to coda, can change the time signature, maintain cadence, whatever. So if you show up today, tonight to play in the concert, 
you will demonstrate evidence of the following standards. So when I, people say has a nice, neat notebook, for example, mm -hmm. I'm going to use notebook grades in my class. I say, show me the standard where it says has a nice, neat notebook. I have read every single math standard for every single state in the United States, kindergarten through 12th grade. I know some people listening to this will think, gosh, Rick, get a life. <laughs> At any rate, I have. And no state anywhere in the United States says has a nice, neat notebook. Mm -hmm. It's simply not an expression of your capacity to do order of operation, slope way intercept, or understand conic sections or integrals. Now, it happens to be a wonderful stepping stone, you know, technique to get there. But what I basically just outlined is anything that is a teacher method is now suspect. So I can report it. So you can report homework completion, class collaboration, had your notebook in a timely manner, practice personal hygiene successfully, though next time less acts. Whatever it might be, I can report those things, but I can't let the report of one thing conflate with the report of something else. I can't have those two mix. So in one column, you have a timely adherence to deadlines, for example. I give you a mark on that. But the next column next to it is completely different, and that's what you know about slope intercept or graphing inequalities. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. And, well, and what that does is it increases the accuracy of the real report of students learning. What I've experienced in my career is I've had students coming into my course where last year they only mastered about 75 to 80% of the content, but they got an A and it actually was marked 100 because the remaining 20% was you did homework, you, you tutored young children, you brought in canned food for the canned food drive, and things that were not indi indicators of the evidence that was actually claiming to be reported. To me, this is distorting truth or another form of lying mm -hmm. if you realize you're doing it and yet you continue to perpetuate that. For those looking to expand the conversation on grading or other hot topics in the educational space, I want to take a minute to tell you about a new online resource from Better Leaders, Better Schools called Go Community. This has become one of my favorite places to go to engage with other amazing school leaders. This online resource is a great place to have conversations with other leaders, gain insight, engage in book studies, and develop your own leadership capacity. This online community is very, very different than social media because it's a private community with the same goal. I highly recommend using Go Community to level up your leadership capacity. If you're interested, go to joshstamper.com resources to sign up. So Rick, another passionate topic in regards to grades is the role of homework. So for those who are providing homework and grading it, do you feel that's an equitable practice? No, actually, um, there's, there's, we're pretty convinced on this. Like, I don't see a lot of debate on this anymore. So uh, we might we need to get some resources out there in the hands of people to take a closer look at it. But homework is meant to be practice. And in many schools, my own included, we really just call it practice. Now we're mindful of the role it plays. And when you're first coming to know, you need to have a safe place to wrestle without it being high stakes. It's high feedback, but it's low stakes. One of the things we've learned is if you put a judgment on something like a letter grade, a percentage, or a rubric number, you make it high stakes. You invoke ego. And now the child is very aware of his status. Uh, he might feel cornered, uh, and cornered animals tend to lash out but they're not willing to do a critical error analysis and really do that deeper dive and understand their mistakes and grow from it. It's not a safe place anymore because they're trying to self-preserve. So sometimes they might literally just say, 
yeah, I forgot my homework, I didn't have time to do it or whatever, make excuses and have a reputation of being irresponsible or scatterbrained than to give you any indication that they struggle academically because they want to belong. They don't want to give the world more ammunition that they're worthy of rejection. They'd rather have the other reputation. And homework is such an incredibly valuable thing. Practice, I think, really, really helps as long as it's meaningful, it's resonant. One thing that really uh, convicted me reading the you know, works of Alfie Cohn long ago is that a lot of us tend to elevate and say, well, if you practice basketball a lot, you get better at basketball. If you write a lot, you get better at writing, play guitar a lot, you get better at guitar. If you code a lot, you get better at coding. But you do those things a lot because you like them. You have intrinsic value in them. Yes. It lights you up. And what we found is you do improve in things in which you find meaning, you find value. But when you practice things, you find drudgery, you actually don't improve. And then on top of that, the statistical correlation bubble between doing regular homework for hours and hours after school and subsequent achievement in any given discipline in high school and middle school in particular is unusually tiny. It's stunningly tiny. So a lot of teachers, unfortunately, who may lack versatility or repertoire, they might put all their eggs in that one basket. And I've heard teachers lament, well, how can I possibly teach this child? He doesn't even do his homework. And I'm saying, look, that's maybe one door closed for whatever reason, but you have 999 other ways to teach. And a reminder that homework is given to practice of what has already been vetted as learned, never to learn it for the very first time. So in any given class, going back to differentiation from the beginning of our conversation, in any given class, a teacher would not give homework to a subgroup of students who had not demonstrated full accurate understanding of what was going on because practice makes permanent. It doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent. And it will take 10 times that emotional intellectual energy to go back and undo bad learning. Then it would have teach the next day correctly and then let them practice the material. So if you're talking about fair isn't always equal and differentiation, for example, I think it's very legitimate and I have done this repeatedly in my career to great effect no pair of phone calls, no whining complaints of that's not fair. Nothing like that happens. Mm -hmm. But I have said, this group over here, you do not have homework tonight. The rest of you, you have homework. Or you guys have different homework. And compared to those people, they have different homework. Because fair means I give you developmentally what you need, not the same. I can count on one hand, no, excuse me, two hands. So it's about 10 times a year. That the amount of times that I've given the same homework assignment to everybody in the whole class. There's always one kid or eight or nine or 12 where I might adjust things from time to time. And that just screams that I know you well. I'm an advocate. I'm looking out for you. I'm not playing adversary and gotcha. So homework is practice of what they've already vetted is learned. Otherwise, we don't assign it. And homework is never, ever to be woven into a final declaration of mastery. If a teacher was just practicing coming to know a new strategy, I wouldn't show up in the first day or two that they were trying it out and then evaluate them. And that would go on their graduate school transcript. I would say, let's, let's coach, let's practice these things. And I'd come back after a point they achieved mastery and that information, that evidence of that performance then would be what counts the most in the final evaluation. But homework needs to be a safe place an oasis away from that, that we can really employ all we know about 
monitoring your own progress towards a goal and descriptive feedback and the, the instructional value of both. Rick, I'm going to shift gears because I'm just curious in the direction of grading GPAs for the future because a lot of times different levels look above them and say, well, we do what we do because the grade above us or the secondary or college has this system in place and so we have to essentially do the same thing. So do you believe that the grading system will change and GPAs will be taken away? Yeah, I you know in my lifetime I think that will happen, and you know, I I plan to retire when I'm 95. So, <laughs> Me too. Uh, I, that's about 35, 36 years or so. So I you know I think that um, that it, it will happen. Let me just comment on on a couple of points in, inherent in what you just said. Mm-hmm. I wrote an article that's far more coherent than I am right now. <laughs> that came out last year on I think the editor called it. We have to get ready for the next level, right? Right. And it's on my website if you ever want to post that in association with this podcast. Yes, I sure will. But, uh, and it's a mistake to think that we have to recreate the practices and policies of the levels above us in the lower level as the best way to prepare them for that upper level. What we find is that the two best preparatory things for the next level, regardless of what their policies and practices are, so it could be dramatically different, doesn't matter, the most transformative, preparative thing is one, personal maturation, really grow up, learn how to get your act together. Let me build that self-efficacy, that executive function in you. But two, really learning the stuff of the current level. So what I think is better serving teachers and thereby their students is for them to kind of enter into mindset of live this one week of your life powerfully. Let's teach you all those things that will allow you to navigate the life and learn this material. But I'm also going to teach you the savvy to handle anything that's not differentiated for you. So I'll teach you 10 different ways to take notes, not just one, for example. And we'll get you, you know, really diverse in a variety of apps and technologies if we need to. But I'm not going to sit there and say one size fits all as we do that. Now, on top of that, more and more colleges have a school within the university or the entire university are saying no grades the entire freshman year. We want you to stop chasing points and grades. We want you to chase the learning. MIT is one of those schools. Freshmen at MIT, which are very high caliber kids, and they're used to monitoring their GPA quite intensely. They, have, they just go to class. It's roughly a pass or fail thing. The GPA starts counting the sophomore year. But MIT has said very clearly, your knowledge from those freshman classes will matter extraordinary. It'd be very significant in your success your sophomore year, so you can't just skip them. Other universities, like Drake University has some programs that do this in Iowa. Reed College in Oregon has no grades whatsoever all four years, just descriptive feedback, but they're a smaller college where they can do that and really provide robust, helpful feedback as they go along. In 2013, February 28th, I think it was, USA Today ran an article on the fact that GPAs are meaningless. Mm -hmm. And we heard from Clemson, UVA, Swarthmore, many others talking about the fact that the raw grades of the classes that demonstrate college caliber rigor, you know, the courses that we value as our college, look at your high school resume. They are the ones we're going to take those grades and we're going to recalculate the GPA based on just those grades, not the GPA that was tempered or influenced by all the other courses and all the other things that some local theater high school districts or your particular high school, wherever it is, wove into it nonetheless. Plus, we have a lot of students today 
who are coming from homeschooling and charter schools and some independent schools, some religious schools, where there is literally no grade. There's no GPA. It's just narrative commentary. Mm -hmm. And those students go on to do very, very well in college. So now, how do we compare you as a candidate with others? We could do a kind of fake grade if we needed to, but they find other ways to do it. So what I'm hearing from reading national school boards journals, um, chronicles of higher ed, working with admissions officers from time to time, in my experience, is that they're finding a way to look at the caliber of the candidate through the Common App, the, the interviews, ups, um, uh, supplemental uh, submissions that might come along. They really are understanding this idea that it's about the learning. Carnegie, you know, we, we mentioned uh, the idea of, you know, for years and years and years, it was the number of minutes you had in a class that would constitute you past the course. But Carnegie even, you know, just I think it was the last 10 years or so, has now switched it to, oh, no, you have to demonstrate evidence of learning the standards yep. in those classes because we're, we're realizing that, holy cow, kids are graduating without really demonstrating full competence. Mm -hmm. The grades have been buffered, again, by things that weren't indicative of really the evidence that was going on. So I think you're finding GPAs that high schools and districts calculate becoming more fragile, less predictive, but the raw grades of rigorous courses and proof of tenacity and putting yourself out there, showing initiative, sticking with something deeply rather than having 14 or 15 things that are kind of superficial in your participation, that those other those, those indicators are now leading college to say, oh, we can take you and you'll probably be quite viable in our, our freshman class. I mean, I, I live that. <laughs> I did terrible in high school <laughs> and really took off in college only because the system was completely different. I want to talk about some more futuristic things and not to get too bogged down in that. But lately I read an article which discussed AI and the role it will play in the workplace. And it was interesting because the AI passed the state testing for the secondary level, but it could not pass at the preschool level. And what the article really was getting at was the fact that there's a lot more discovery in the preschool level, which AI could not do. So in regards to our educators trying to get our students prepared for the future, what should they be doing to create lessons to prepare them for? And then also, what should their assessments look, look like instead of just looking for a singular response? Well, there's a lot of intersecting elements in that. What, the first place my mind goes to is access. Mm -hmm. I think AI, AI is out there, but I think we're very unequal in access to AI. Sure. And under-resourced schools, that gap is going to continue to grow wider unless we do something fundamentally transformative, radical, disruptive mm -hmm. in what the way we do school in the United States. Yep. So that yep. dynamic of who has access to AI and whether or not it's going to be an augment inside your brain as some kind of minor chip or a, some kind of Bluetooth thing on your ear right. or like you look like the Borg. <laughs> or, or, or you, it could be, remember old Google Glass, you yeah. know, where you could just wear the glasses and so on. Yeah. I think there's going to be different levels of implementation according to the affluent and the impoverished. And that's going to be a really big issue. So that's sure. one dynamic. I'm very aware of that. And we need to really sit down and have hard conversations about that. Yep. The second thing is I'm deeply troubled by people who get caught up in the tech and lose sight of the pedagogy. Sure. The instructional design. And so, like, for example, I've been coaching teachers recently who spend about 20, 25 minutes 
incorporating the technology and so on. And it became cumbersome. It was getting in the way of the learning. And I hate to say this, but a quick three minute chalk drawing or even a <laughs> flannel board baby and puppets would have done a better job. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that, um, that I understand the cognitive science on what I want to do to create an ex a learning experience for children is paramount. Mm -hmm. And if we get caught up in the apps, oh, this is another way, oh, it's making my life easier. I think that's too easy. It's too much our face pressed against the candy shop wall or, or window, I should say. And we're salivating, salivating that stuff, but we're forgetting what we know about how the mind learns. So that that's another dynamic that, sure. that is in there. And it will, we will be troubled by AI very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. I'm also very aware about AI and self-learning and curiosity. And I don't think we can ever supplant the human mind in that regard. And I think there's value in not being reliant and dependent on AI. For example, I'm going to totally sound like a Luddite here, but I, I will tell you that, again, I wrote this in an article. There well, People are welcome to look it up and get more on this. But I think in a world in which you can always look things up and access things, memorization still has a role to play. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when you look at new text or you see artwork or you see a, a, some kind of media out there, if you don't have things already in storage in your mind, it's hard to make connections. It's hard to see patterns. It's hard to determine what's salient, lift up, and say, I'm going to take this from that or what it, how it connects to other things because everything is equal in its importance or lack of importance or lack of connection or true connection. So the idea that you would memorize the five protections under the First Amendment will have play. The idea that you memorize uh, swaths of speeches, I think that has play. Uh, memorizing 200 or more Latin word roots and prefixes so that when you see the word biology for the very first time in high school, you realize, oh, logi, study of bio-living things, biology, study of living things. Right. You see cardi, C-A-R-D-I, you realize has to do with the heart. You see ped or pod, and you think has to do with foot. Oh, ceph is head, C-E-P-H. So cephalopod is hef, head, foot, animal, mollusca, squid. Or you see, oh, pedestrian. Oh, I see that it has to do with the foot and walking. And, and suddenly it just makes so much more sense. There's so many more connections. Mm -hmm. So I think that if we make a whole generation or multiple generations of, of humans only able to think and make connections based on what somebody else feeds us via AI, that w there will be a, a, a huge loss and sure. we will lose whatever a lot of that humanity is. Mm -hmm. So we can't forsake that because our eyes are all caught in the gleam of AI on the horizon. Yeah. Now, having said that, AI is going to be really unfathomably helpful to so many things we aspire to do, to become, and I'm okay with that. That's fine. But without losing the creative self, the, the sense of self, and the sense of identity, or the autonomy that we have, I think increasingly we're more and more uh, reliant upon AI to do things, and we don't have the wherewithal to navigate even just basic things if AI were not to be available. And that does include, you know, I re I'm reliant on, ex overly reliant on external validation to find my own value as a human. Correct. And that creates, you know, depressive states. Yeah. That's already happening today with social media. Oh, most definitely. If I don't get likes within five minutes 
or you don't redirect me to some other site that I really, really like, I'm wondering what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. I'm only, I only have value in relation to my test score and I'm a sum of numbers and, and calculations and algorithms. I think that AI, uh, it, you know, Jared Lanier has talked about this. Many, many other folks have talked about the fact that we're incredibly manipulated by the simple algorithms that people use to assess, you know, to monitor what we're viewing online and so on. Mm-hmm. And that leads us down that path and that path. And you wonder who's creating whom, you know, as you do that, am I the sum of my life experiences or am I the sum of what an algorithm chooses to put in front of me? And those, again, are the hard conversations that might creep into this. But I think there's like the idea of bringing, you know, doing virtual field trips to places we just don't have the finances or the time to go visit. Uh, You know, 1% of of the Smithsonian artifacts are on display at the Smithsonian museums. Mm-hmm. 99% of it is not on display. So I can bring in 3D so many of these cool things. We can go visit all these different places and bring it back to the classroom and enliven our lives and enrich, in, enrich you know, all that the students are aspiring to be. I think that's gold and that's a wonderful place for AI. But I do pose those initial concerns. Just to tie everything together, for instance, if there is a teacher or a leader out there that has a very traditional system in place for grading, they agree with everything that you just talked about in this podcast, what would be your advice for their starting point to start to make those changes? Well, the first thing is kind of funny, but I would just tell my administrator, you know, if they were concerned about me making changes, whereas some of my colleagues are not, just kind of lean over and say, shh. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's just a pilot. We're going to call it a pilot every year and nobody will be upset, you know, kind of on the slide. Sure. <laughs> because a pilot's not as threatening, but if you call it a new policy or program, people freak out. Right. But the idea that you would experiment in the microcosm of your own class and then translate it to the school district's language so you can keep your job mm-hmm. sounds pretty good to me. Yep. But to not do something is really being complicit in the harm that's going on to kids. I mean, what goes unachieved in kids, unlearned in students, because we played it politically safe. So I think that there are some some ways to really demonstrate what you really believe about some of these grading ideas and courage or conviction. For example, you could truly really focus on becoming evidentiary. Everything I do in assessments can be rallied around evidence of the standard, and I'm going to communicate that and be very transparent with that right away. And now I'm going to see how the kids oh, they can actually understand and monitor their own prog- progress, and now they own their learning more, and I don't have to do as much cajoling because they're really invested in what's going on. I might decide, you know, I'm going to keep a separate spreadsheet, but I'm just going to separate formative from summative and really play with not accounting the formative in the summative stuff and just see how it changes the grades and if I'm more comfortable with that accuracy. I'm going to learn some of the skill sets of instructional and cognitive coaching I think every teacher should be trained on that. Some schools have instructional coaches, and I think every teacher should get trained on that because one of the coolest things is you learn the questions to ask to get other people to the solutions, not telegraph or tell them outright, and then they own it more. So I can pretend to be a little bit more innocent and say things like, well, you know, this article in the research says homework should count zero, but I know that our department or our school counts it 10% or 20%. I'm struggling. Can you help me reconcile that? What's our real goal with homework? And that kind of speaks to, you know, uh, I guess a fourth strategy now where you pull the camera's lens back and you ask the larger perspective pictures that helps people 
who are bogged down in the reductive nature, the logistics of pulling it off, take a larger look at what they do, and then they realize, oh, maybe that's not actually what I want to do. I want to go a different direction. And part of that is really entering into place of what do we have in common with each other when we disagree with you know a policy here and there. And you start from what we have in common, and then you say, okay, good, we have that in common. What leads to that success with that particular value? Like if we think grades should be accurate, what leads to accurate grades? If we think grades should not be accurate, well, what are the things that people do that make grades inaccurate? Oh, look, we do those things. Let's stop doing them if we have courage and conviction and we aren't hypocrites. Yeah. But I think in the first year or two, experimenting with some of the sub-elements, like you do one redo between now and January. Uh, and when we're recording this, it's you know it's early fall. Sure. So we record it now. That's three or four months. We're good with that. And then maybe I have a separate Excel spreadsheet if my current software doesn't allow me to do it, electronic gradebook. And I report on things that, that our community finds valuable, like meets deadlines, you know, maintains a nice, neat notebook, is, it, is attentive and, and collaborative and small group work, because we value that tremendously. Yep. And I experiment with what it's like to give feedback on that, but to report it separately, those would be great first steps. But to not do anything because right now maybe parents don't like it or school board members don't like it a bigger question is to what degree are we going to allow people who are untrained to tell us what to do and i think there's a a very diplomatic way uh, a very constructive way that we can get across hey we're actually professionals we know what we're doing can you trust me here mm -hmm. and i can do this without stepping on every other teacher's toes or without removing the autonomy of some of my colleagues i think we can actually set policies that have parameters and teachers are asked to work within those parameters. If, however, somebody is truly doing something unethical, I think it's time to, to, you know, to express that deep concern, work with them very intensely. And if after a year or you know, a year and a half or so, they're really not coming along, then you have to decide, is it really worth having in front of children? Really, you know, a whole future is at stake here, right. building a future or destroying one based on an antiquated grading notion. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, where do you step up? Where do you choose your battles? It's hard for me to judge from afar. And it's really, I have no right to do that. But these are the things that I've thought about in my career that led to eventually great success and that we've shared with other schools around the world. And Rick, for our listeners who want to connect with you, how can they connect with you on social media? Ah, well, first of all, they, they can always do the website, which is just my, my full name and .com. So it's at rickwarmly.com. And just make sure you spell that you know correctly. I think you'll have it posted here on the podcast. Yes. And then uh, there is at Rick Warmly on Twitter, but it was hacked about five years ago. So the one, the new one, because I'm so creative teaching the future of all educators, <laughs> <laughs> it's called at Rick Warmly Two. Yes. Yay! I'm so innovative, <laughs> and they can always connect with me there. And then in all of my articles, I always publish how you can get a hold of me. Uh, the books I write, everything else, there's always ways to get a hold of me there. Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. I told you before, you have been an inspiration for my own leadership journey, and I want to thank you tonight for all of your wisdom. Man, I am so honored you said that. When you do this stuff, you just wonder whoever's going to use it, and then somebody of your caliber says it was valuable. That just means the world. Thank you so much, Joshua. <laughs>